Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Last week we considered the first 21 verses of this chapter, and we are going to return to consider some of those verses again, verses 13 through 17, really focusing here on verses 16 and 17. You'll remember that the Jerusalem Council was trying to settle a very important matter. Some had come down from Judea, uh, teaching the disciples there, disturbing them, teaching them that they must be circumcised in order to be saved. And so the Jerusalem Council gathered in order to answer that question, and they put it to rest after much discussion and after James went to the word of God, bringing to them the words of promise from Amos chapter 9, and that really, in this summary form, settled the matter. And that promise that James was quoting from Amos is a promise in which Christ will restore the ruins. And so we're going to focus in upon that text this morning and see, just as James did then, James was saying that text applies to the church between Christ's first coming and his return. So we, still living in that time, are going to consider how it applies to us today. So I'll begin our reading at verse 13. Remember, there has been much debate here. Peter stands up and gives his account. Paul and Barnabas stand up and give their account. And then we'll pick up with verse 13 with James giving his account. And we'll read through his quotation, ending there at the end of verse 17. This is the word of God. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will rebuild and I will rebuild. I'm sorry. And after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Amen. This is the word of God. So what is it all about? What is it that frames your life in this world? How do you make sense of things? How do you make sense of your place in the present world? Here in Acts 15, the apostles and elders have gathered together in Jerusalem because things were thrown into a great confusion. So much had transpired in the life of God's people over the last 20 or so years that the church has now come to a point where it needed to make sense of it all. Think about everything that had transpired over the previous two decades or so. If we go back to the events just before the Gospels open, We will find Israel living under Roman occupation, having heard no new revelation from God for about 400 years. It was a long time of silence from God. But then John the Baptist appears and he comes preparing the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes and in his public ministry he declares that in him has come the kingdom of God. And after three years of ministry, he was rejected by his own people. He was condemned as if a sinner. He was crucified, died, and buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. 
He appeared to his disciples many times and to groups as large as 500. And all of these events really caused so much confusion. There was confusion in the wider world. Who is this man Jesus and what are we to make of his claims? But then there, were also, there was also confusion within the Christian community. Suddenly, this largely homogenous group made up of mostly Jews is flooded with Gentile believers. So what should the church make of that mixture? How are they to understand all of these developments? Well, as we heard last week, some came to those Gentile believers saying that in order to be saved, they needed to be circumcised. And so the apostles and elders gathered into Jerusalem, in Jerusalem to debate the matter and seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit. They were eager to be delivered out of that state of confusion and back into a state of clarity. They sought the Spirit so that together they might exchange that distraction for the devotion and dedication that Christ had given to his church in the Great Commission. And so Acts 15 begins with the church living in this state of distraction. They are in danger because of a great confusion. But through the work of the Jerusalem Council, we see that the church is restored. Uh, they are restored to a place of devotion and dedication because of the clarity that was restored through the word of God. You see, it was the clarity that came by way of the word of God that allowed the church to dismantle that danger, that threat of the gospel, and instead restore the church to that place of purpose. When Acts 15 opens, the church is stalled in her mission. But when it closes, the church is back on mission, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that is lost in sin. What brought about this restoration? What was it that brought clarity to the church? What restored their focus and purpose? Well, it was the word of God. James stood up and he took that prophecy from Amos Using the sword of the Spirit, James frayed, uh, framed the circumstances of the church according to the word of God. James appealed to scripture to make sense of it all. And as the apostles and elders considered the word of God, they were then blessed with that understanding that comes when one sees life through the lens of the word of God. So do you have that kind of clarity this morning? Do you know what it is all about? Do you see your life in this world as framed by the first and second coming of Christ? Is your life framed by what Christ is doing in this world? Here in our text, we see the word of God using the word of God. We see James quoting the Old Testament here in a New Testament passage. And any time we have the New Testament using the Old Testament, we have a special opportunity to see how the Word of God itself applies the Word of God. So what was the meaning and message found in Amos 9? And why was that text so powerful to restore the church in this time where they were threatened and where they were confused? Well, with God's blessing, I hope to answer these questions this morning so that we might have that same blessing, so that we might put aside any sort of confusion and instead have clarity and commitment that we see here found in the early church. In summary form, Amos' message to Israel was a message of ruin, restoration, and results. 
ruin, restoration, and results. And James took up that message and he applied it to the church in this time in between Christ's first coming and his return. So how do these things apply to us today? Well, let's consider each of these now. Let's begin by considering first the ruins. Amos was one of the earlier prophets, and he was given an intimidating task of confronting God's people in a time in which they had forgotten God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, that big sermon given to God's people before they entered the promised land, they were warned about the coming danger that they would find in the promised land. And that coming danger was the danger of prosperity. God warned his own people that when they had eaten and were full, when they had built houses and lived in them, when they had herds and flocks and silver and gold multiplying, then their hearts would be lifted up and they would forget about God who had brought them up out of Egypt. In other words, even though God had already powerfully and graciously redeemed them out of their slavery in Egypt, they would face the threat of prosperity in the promised land. And that threat would cause them to forget about God. And that's precisely what happened. That is the reason why Amos is sent to Israel. The prophet Amos is sent to Israel to confront them now with their sin. And throughout that book, it's a short book, you could read it this afternoon, you will see that there are five ways in which Israel had fallen into ruins. First of all, Israel prioritized material prosperity. They prioritized material prosperity. In Amos 3.15, the prophet speaks for God, and he takes aim at their material prosperity. He says, you have summer houses and winter houses. He describes these as great houses made of ivory. And in chapter 6, their prosperity is evidenced in how they spend their blessings upon themselves. They spend it upon themselves in terms of leisure time. They spend it upon themselves in terms of the fancy foods with which they delight themselves. And so the first sin recognized is Israel's greed. God's people were given over to greed. Not only was one house not enough, but they even demanded a certain comfort level for themselves. And Amos is sent to Israel to call out their sin of prioritizing material prosperity. Second, and related to this, Israel abused the poor and needy. This is connected to their first sin. Because Israel spent extravagantly upon themselves, they could not care for the poor. In God's eyes, this is the language of Amos, in God's eyes they were oppressing the poor. In the sight of God, they were crushing the needy. Notice, they weren't actually doing anything to the needy. It was because of their neglect of the needy that they were oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. The law of God was given in part to protect the poor to care for the sojourner, for the widow, and for the needy. But because Israel's attention was fixated on themselves, because their time and their resources were spent on only themselves, the word of Amos is they trampled on the needy and brought the poor to an end. So that is the second sin that Amos aims at. Israel abused the poor and needy. Third, Israel's worship had become worthless. Through the prophet Amos, God identifies the fact that they observed, Israel observed the appointed feasts, 
They gathered in solemn assemblies, they brought appropriate sacrifices, and they brought their offerings to God. But then God says that he took no delight in these things. Why? Well, to use the language of the prophet Isaiah, because while they honored God with their mouths, their hearts were far from him. Rather than actually delighting in God in worship, their worship had become worthless. Fourth, Israel became like the world around them. In Deuteronomy 12, again, that that great sermon given to God's people before they enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy 12, God gives instruction to the people that when they go in to the promised land, they are to remove all of the ways in which those previous inhabitants had worshipped their gods. Why? So that they wouldn't be tempted to become like this world. So that they wouldn't be tempted, in the language of Deuteronomy 12, to ask, How did the nations serve their gods that we may do the same? Well, picking up on this language in Amos 9, God sees and says that Israel had become just like the other nations. He says, you are just like the Cushites to me. He was saying that even though you think you're still set apart from my vantage point, there's nothing left to distinguish you from those previous inhabitants. And so Israel had become like the world. Fifth, Israel continued in these sins presumptuously. God had graciously sent them this prophet to identify their sins. God had graciously sent them this prophet to call them to repentance. And yet, Amos 9.10 says, and this is the language of Israel, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. And so even though God had graciously sent them this prophet to turn them out of their sins, they were still continuing in them presumptuously. They would ignore the prophets and say, no disaster will ever overtake us. And so Israel refused to repent, thinking they were immune to God's judgment or chastening. Well, that brings us back to Acts chapter 15. James stands up in the presence of the Jerusalem council, and this is what he's quoting. He is quoting the book of Amos, and he is applying the words of Amos to the present situation. And so in part, James was saying that Israel, or God's people at that time, remained in those ruins. That was the state of Israel when Christ had come. They were living in those ruins. Now before we go on to hear the great word of promise that follows... We need to pause here to appreciate what this means. What do ruins look like? When I simply say the word ruins, what comes to mind? It's very likely that you are thinking of something like a city that has been ruined through war. You are seeing something where there has been destruction and desolation, but notice what God is looking at when he says that Israel is in ruins. They are prospering in all of the ways of this world. They have much in terms of material possessions, leisure time, and disposable income. So why is that ruins? Why does God look upon that and say, you are left in ruins? Well, it is because they had allowed, despite God's warnings, they had allowed all of these things to steal from them that one great treasure, which is God himself. 
They were left in ruins, not in terms of this world. They were prospering in terms of this world, but they were left in ruins because all of the blessings, the things of this world, had turned their hearts from God. And so we need to remember what ruins looks like. We need to remember what ruins actually are. Ruins look like being robbed of God by material prosperity. Ruin looks like being robbed of God by neglecting the poor and needy. Ruin looks like being robbed of God through worthless worship. Ruin looks like being robbed of God by being conformed to this world. Ruin looks like being robbed of God by pressing on in these sins presumptuously. We tend to think of ruin in terms of being brought low. But ruin, according to God's word, is actually when the heart is lifted up and in love with all of those things in this world that can turn your heart from God. Being brought low is a blessing. In John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, he represents the Christian life as a path that must pass through Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is a place of great worldly temptation. And the great temptation of Vanity Fair is that pilgrims passing through might be so enticed by the wares of the fair that they fall in love with those things and they forget about God. Some of what Vanity Fair seems innocent enough. It seems innocuous, but it is all designed to turn pilgrims in the end out of the way. And so from one perspective, Vanity Fair looks like a wonderful place. But when you understand what its purpose is, and when you compare it with the glories of the celestial city, then it cannot compare. And so when Christian and faithful, those two pilgrims, when they enter Vanity Fair, they are very carefully setting their minds on things above. They are very carefully guarding their eyes and guarding their ears or eye gates and ear gates so that the things of this world will not be able to enter their hearts and to turn them away from God. They don't allow the things of Vanity Fair to entice them. Instead, they focus on what God has promised to them in the end. They focus on the end of the journey over and against the temptations found in Vanity Fair. And so this gives us the opportunity to pause and to ask, what, what love are we cultivating within our own hearts? And parents, what love are we cultivating within our children? Are we cultivating a love for this world in our own hearts and in the lives and hearts of our children? Or are we setting their minds and our minds on things above? Are we cultivating a desire for what is actually promised to us in Christ. Think about Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful passage of the hall of faith, giving a broad overview of all of those faithful saints who endured the most awful and horrendous circumstances. What was it that brought them through it all? Well, they weren't, when they went into the promised land, those saints referenced in Hebrews 11, they were not looking for an earthly inheritance. They heard the warnings of Deuteronomy 8, and they kept their hearts guarded from the things of this world. They were not looking for an earthly inheritance, but Hebrews 11 says they were looking for a heavenly city. 
They were looking for a city, city whose foundations were built by God. They were looking to dwelling with God. So brothers and sisters, while we live in Vanity Fair, let us remember what ruins look like. You see, there is no middle way between worldliness and godliness. There is no middle path between the wide way that ends in destruction and the narrow path that leads to eternal life. The reason why Jesus wept over Jerusalem is because they had all of the outward forms of religious life, but they were still living in ruins. They were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Remember the ruins. Remember that you can live Among God's people, you can prosper according to the ways of this world, yet you can live in a ruined wasteland because you have allowed these things to steal from you God himself. Well, all of that is intended to set us up for the promise. Because the promise of Amos is that God will see his people in the ruins, and then he will return. So let's go on second to consider that promise. Let's consider the restoration. Here in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, notice this. James stands up and he quotes from the prophet Amos. But notice carefully how he sets up this quotation. In verse 15, overviewing what he is about to say, he says, And with this, the words of the prophets, plural, Agree. The words of the prophets agree. What does that mean? Well, here James is telling us that this quote from the prophet Amos can be rightly viewed as a representative message of all of the prophets. He says, in this way, all of the prophets agree. This is a summary form of what all of the prophets were sent to Israel to say. So, what was this message given to all of the prophets? Well, let's listen to his quote. James quotes Amos 9, 11, and 12, and here's what he says. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Seeing his people in ruins, God announced that he himself would return, rebuild, and restore. And with this, all of the prophets agree. So let's unpack each of those words. How would God rescue his people from those ruins? Well, he begins saying, I will return. It's hard to imagine anyone understanding the full import of those words when they were first given by the prophet Amos. In a general sense, I think those words were probably understood that God would return in some way in grace and mercy for his people. But the fullness of those words were found when Christ was incarnated. When God said that he would turn, he 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 meant that he would condescend to his people by taking on the very flesh that he had created. That the God who dwells in unapproachable light would not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but would empty himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Nothing can really approximate the condescension 
of God to us in Jesus Christ. The greatest distance that we might imagine, maybe from here to the outermost galaxy, is too small to compare what happened when God took on flesh. In order to restore the ruins, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God became a man. Eternity entered into time and transcendence came close. In order to rescue his people from their ruin, Jesus returned in the flesh. He returned to rebuild. He promised to rebuild the tent of David that had fallen and to rebuild its ruins. What does that mean? How do you rebuild ruins? Well, you have all probably seen one of those shows in which somebody buys a house that has been left in ruins. They buy it in order to rebuild it and to restore it. So what do they do? Well, they begin by stripping it down to the joists. And then they rebuild by replacing everything with only the best of materials, with what, have should, with what should have been there in the first place. And so that is the work that Christ is doing now. When Christ comes to rebuild the ruins, he strips away everything down to the studs, and then he rebuilds with the best of materials. When Christ rebuilds the ruins, he takes away from his people a preoccupation with material prosperity, and in its place he gives a singular focus on the kingdom of God. Instead of being bound up with a concern over the riches of this world, he gives that glorious freedom that is found in pursuing the riches of King Jesus. When Christ comes to rebuild the ruins, he takes a away that preoccupation with self and in its place he gives a Christ-like heart that sees others, values others, loves others, and sacrifices for others. When Christ comes to rebuild the ruins, he takes away the empty forms found in worthless worship and in its place he creates a heart that loves the worship of God that loves to gather with God's people, and that finds weekly worship to be a refreshing and a fulfilling foretaste of heaven. This is what Christ himself does. When Christ rebuilds the ruins, he removes our conformity to this world by renewing our minds with his word. And when Christ comes to rebuild the ruins, he replaces any presumption with that true fear of God that comes by believing the gospel. In his return, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, he comes to powerfully and personally rebuild the ruins. He comes armed with his promise that he will fully restore. He is going to restore those things that were ruined by sin. That final promise, I will restore, needs to capture your mind. That word is used only three times total in the New Testament, and one of them is found in Luke chapter 13. There Jesus meets this woman who has been suffering from a disabling spirit for 18 years. And that disabling spirit caused her to be bent over on herself. She could not straighten herself. 
She could not live according to God's original design. She could only see herself. She could not see others. She certainly could not lift her eyes to God. And then Christ shows up in her life. And we have a beautiful picture of restoration because he lays his hands on her and she is immediately restored. That's the word. She is restored and she is for the first time able to stand aright. For the first time able to lift her eyes to God and to live as she should in this world. Well, brothers and sisters, that disabling spirit is a picture of what sin does to us. Spiritually speaking, sin is like that disabling spirit because sin keeps us bent over upon ourselves, keeps us unable to straighten up, to lift our eyes to God and to glorify Him as we were originally designed. And yet Christ's promise is that He will return. He will rebuild. He will restore. He is going to restore that brokenness in you due to sin. It's not yet complete, but it is begun. So how will this happen? Well, from the perspective of the prophet Amos, it seems as though he thought Christ may return only once. But then James takes that same prophecy and he applies it after Christ has come. And he is saying that this is the very work that Jesus is doing in this world. That work began at his first coming, and it will come to completion at his return. The work that Christ promised there in Amos chapter 9, the work that God promised in Jeremiah 31, these things began with Christ's first coming. And they are all now in process, and Jesus will un failingly bring them to completion at his return. And so this means that while Christ has come, we are those who are eagerly waiting for his return. In his first advent, in his first coming, he came and he accomplished our salvation by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that work was so definitive that upon the cross he could cry out saying, it is finished. It is as good as done. But we know that the process of rebuilding has begun. And until Christ brings in all of his elect, we are eagerly waiting for his return because it's at his return that things will fully and finally be restored. And so this work of rebuilding has begun. The tent of David that had fallen and was left in ruins is being rebuilt by Christ. He is right now in the work of restoring it. Anyone who has ever restored a house knows that the beginning of the work is not the finishing of the work. Well, similarly, we have Christ's promise. He said, I will build my church. And so he is now, even now in this world Through the preaching of his word, through the work of his church, he is still at work rebuilding and restoring. Which is why Peter would write in 1 Peter 2, saying, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So this is how we are to understand our lives in this world. It is Christ's first return and his second that are to frame our lives in this world. He has begun rebuilding and restoring. 
And when he returns, he will bring that glorious restoration work to completion. So brothers and sisters, live today in light of what Christ is doing. Seek him alone for that work of rebuilding and restoration in your own heart and life, in the heart and lives of your family, in your church, and throughout this world. Remember that true restoration comes only in Christ. Earlier, I asked you to remember what the ruins looks like. We need to remember that picture given to us by God, but the prophet Amos ends his prophecy by giving us a different picture. He gives us a picture of what the results will look like. And so we're going to end there as well. Let's consider finally the results. In the end of Amos' prophecy, he describes the results of Christ's restoration in two ways. He describes the results in two ways. First, he describes the scope of Christ's restoration, and then second, he describes the extent of Christ's restoration. So we'll consider those two briefly. What is the scope of Christ's restoration? Well, in verse 16, James' quotation begins with the promise, I will return, I will rebuild, and I will restore. But then verse 17 continues saying that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That is the scope of Christ's restoration work. It is all those who are called by Christ's name. The scope of Christ's restoration is all those for whom Christ died. You see, God's plan of salvation has always anticipated a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That multitude so great that it could not be numbered gathered around God's throne in worship. The promise that was given to Adam and Eve the promise of a coming Messiah was given to Adam and Eve before the whole human race descended from them by ordinary generation. When God made his covenant with Abraham, he said that his descendants would be more numerous than all of the stars of heaven and that in his seed, Christ, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And now for thousands and thousands of years, God's people have been singing the Psalms. We have been singing of a worldwide gospel proclamation that will result in the ingathering of all God's people. And so the scope of Christ's restoration is all those who are called by his name. Jesus said that all that the Father gives him will come to him, and he will not let a single one slip from his hand. And so the sun rose again this morning, and it will continue to rise until Christ's return, because until Christ's return, he will be doing this work of rebuilding and restoring. That's the scope of Christ's restoration work. Amos' prophecy ends by focusing upon the extent of Christ's restoration, and it is a captivating scene. It is a beautiful picture. I want you to listen to the words there found in Amos chapter 9. We began this morning with these words, but here Amos is lifting our eyes to the full and the final restoration that Christ will bring at his return. He says, Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That is a picture of what heaven will be like. That is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. In the final words of his prophecy, Amos is here invoking the imagery of an abundant garden and of a fruitful farm, and that is very intentional. He is invoking or calling to mind the imagery of the Garden of Eden and the land of Canaan. The Garden of Eden was itself in the beginning a faint picture of the glories of heaven, the place where God dwells, a bountiful garden. And then the land of Canaan was prepared for God's people as a land flowing with milk and honey. And there they had the tabernacle which became the temple, again, the place of God's dwelling. Well, in the history of God's people, those two places are the pinnacle of human experience, the pinnacle of man's experience with God. But what is Amos saying? Amos is saying here that at the end, when Christ's rebuilding and restoring work is done, that restoration will exceed the Garden of Eden and the land of Canaan. What awaits the saints in glory is an abundance that knows no ebb or flow. In both the Garden of Eden and in the land of Canaan, there had to be cultivation. There had to be seed time and harvest. But what awaits the saints in glory is a place that is so prosperous, so enjoyable that these earthly bounds know no existence. Why is that? Why is heaven pictured as a place where you can't even keep up with the abundance, the bounty that overflows upon God's people? Well, the answer is because there we will enjoy a perfect and unbroken communion with God forever. He is what makes heaven, heaven. There we will enjoy his presence, never again to be left alone. And there we will know no more sorrow or suffering, but instead the perfect enjoyment of God forever. And the final words of this prophecy add that this will be ours permanently. This will be ours permanently. In glory, our enjoyment of God will be ours in fullness and unchangeable forever. I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted. We will enjoy God fully. In the language of Revelation 21, this, brothers and sisters, have this image etched in your minds. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is the result of Christ's restoration work. And he has promised to do it. I will return. I will rebuild. I will rebuild. I will restore. We are heading there and nothing can stop it. I asked you earlier to remember the ruins so that you might be guarded in this world from letting the things of this world steal your heart from God. But I also want you to remember the results Remember the results of Christ's work of restoration because that is what your soul needs. That is what can cause you to live throughout this pilgrim journey lifted, lifted throughout all of the peaks and valleys. Remember what the ruins look like so that you won't be robbed by them of God. Remember that Christ has come. He is rebuilding. He is right now at work doing this work of restoration. And remember the glorious picture at the end of Amos 9 or Revelation 21. Because there you will know perfection. There you will know God. And your soul will long for nothing else but him again. Remember that this comes by way of God's promise. In James's quotation of Amos, God says, I will four times. I will return. I will rebuild. I will rebuild and I will restore. The promise is made that way so that its sure foundation is God alone And the promise is made that way so that we know to cling to it. Hear him. I will return. I will rebuild. And I will restore. Hear him because he who promises you is faithful. And he will surely do it. Let us pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we pray that you might etch these things upon our hearts according to your promise. We are so very thankful for the revelation of your word which teaches us how to understand this world and what is truly taking place here. Lord, you could have left us in our sin content with the things of this world only to follow that wide road to destruction. But in your great love, you have not only given us Christ, but you have revealed to us his work here in your word. And so we pray that you might cause our hearts and our minds to be renewed by your word so that we will be guarded and never found living in ruins. 
so that we might keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ and that great work of restoration that he has begun and that he will that he will perfectly carry out into completion. And Lord, will you lift our hearts with the picture of that result, of that great place, that great time in which we will be with you. When faith gives way to sight and every longing we have ever known will be fulfilled because we will be in your perfect and unbroken presence forever. Lord, teach us to value what you have promised us in Christ so that we might spend our days here for the glory of your name. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together in our song.